0: Welcome to the Renaissance podcast. Thanks for dropping by and we hope that this is going to deeply encourage you. The vision of Renaissance is to encounter the creator, be equipped as creatives and empower every local church to become a cathedral of creativity. We're going to be bringing you the highlights from Renaissance London 2023. I really hope this blesses you and really enjoy it. Don't forget to connect in on Instagram at renaissance.movement or online renaissancemovement.org. God bless you. Enjoy. Our guest tonight is P Hughes. Uh, P is... Um An amazing friend, he is married to B. they have some amazing children, but more than that, like as a church, KXC and Saint are kind of two miles apart, and over the last um, six, nine months, since what we talked about a little bit, the kind of move that God has been doing in this season, we've kind of, God has broken our hearts for unity, and we've been working together in some really cool ways that, you know, we can share another time, but um, Pete comes not tonight as like a guest speaker, Um, this is genuinely Pete's church, and I want him, and we're going to welcome him in a moment just to, like to come and like share from the heart and I want to I encourage you to um, go get a hold of a copy of Pete's book, All Things New. It is brilliant. Um, it is it is like if you read, if you take one thing away from this event, go take this away. It'll help you think through what it means to be involved in creativity and culture in a fresh way. Um, so it's a real treat to have um, Pete. Where are you? Pete's here. Pete did actually start out with a little bit of rap music when he was a teenager. You were in a band called TP Influence. I do know this, but we're not going to try and recreate. We could do. We could do. It could go wrong. Um, so listen, we're going to welcome Pete. We might just get that little um, table, if that's all right. I think it's around so. Some... Oh, oh, wow. They got it on. That's amazing. Thank you so much. Um, can we just give it up for the volunteers who are making this event happen? We love you guys. And Pete, why don't you come on up and let's pray as you come. Father, thank you so much for Pete. And we pray that as he speaks tonight, you would release more of your presence in this place. Pray you'd fill him with the Holy Spirit and that his message tonight wouldn't just be like a a conference talk. We don't need any more of those. That you'd speak to the heart of every one of us with the word of God. That you would do something remarkable in this place. Not because we deserve it or we have anything that qualifies us. Just because Jesus, you are here. And Lord, we just encourage this man as he speaks. Fill him with your Holy Spirit, we pray. In Jesus'
1: name, amen. Let's encourage Pete one more time. It is an absolute joy to be here. I got on the train from King's Cross over to here at Hangley, and as I walked into this room, because we've been doing these joint prayer nights, I've spent hours and hours in this building. Like, literally, we did an all-nighter. So, went right through the night, and because I spent so much time praying in this space, as I walked in, I did feel like, wow, this doesn't feel like visiting a Maze Church. It feels like coming home. So, it's an absolute joy to be here. And I want to start by just just expressing massive thanks to the Saint family for hosting us and for hosting this incredible conference. What the Lord is doing through Saint, what the Lord is doing through the Renaissance movement, it is unbelievable. It's for such a time as this. So if you're part of the Saint family of churches, can I just say massive thanks for what you're stewarding right now? If you're on the same staff team in any one of the locations, what you're giving yourself to in this season, um, it's an inspiration to us. We feel like we're following in your slipstream. So thank you for what you're doing. We know that it comes with a cost, particularly working with Al. So we know there's cost to it. Um, but we are so grateful. And to Al and Liv, um, we, we, we are so grateful for the leadership you bring, not just to this church, not just to the City of London, to the UK, but to the nations. Um, So can we give these guys just a huge round of applause? Here's my working assumption for ministry right now. This is the working assumption I bring to every meeting, every prayer gathering, every moment of planning, strategizing. The assumption is this, that we're at the beginning of a very significant move of the Spirit. So I go into every meeting with that assumption. I think we're at the beginning of a very significant move of the Spirit. And I'm going to outline some of the reasons why I think we're at the beginning of such a move. But before I outline the reasons, I want to fire up the imagination of what happens when the Spirit begins to move. The answer is that people wake up, right? And when people wake up and experience inner transformation, they become agents of transformation in their community. So when people are revived, When the church is revived, it brings awakening to the surrounding culture. And it only needs one. It only needs one, think of the, the Samaritan woman at the well. She wakes up to the reality of Jesus as Messiah, and it brings awakening to the whole town. I, I've seen this, I've witnessed this with my own eyes. So Rewon the Clock a number of years, I visited a place in Northern Uganda called Sarati. I went to visit some churches that were doing some incredible work in this area of cultural renewal. Their strategy was simple, they would send out teams to preach the gospel, guess what? People came to faith. And when people came to faith, they put them into these small groups where they started reading the scriptures, reading the stories of Jesus in the gospels. And as they're reading these stories, the host of the group would say to these people that have recently come to faith in Jesus, what do you have in your hand right now that could alleviate human suffering and create pathways to human flourishing. Now you've got to understand that a lot of the people coming to faith were coming to faith from backgrounds of extreme poverty. So the standard answer was, I've got nothing to bring to the mix. And the hosts of these Bible studies were basically saying, no, you're in a new story now. It's the kingdom story and everyone's got a part to play. What strengths, experiences, skills can you bring to this new story of the kingdom of God on the move? So this one guy was in this process and he basically said, look, there is one thing I possess, but I don't see how this could contribute to this kingdom story. The one thing I possess is a piece of land. The problem with the land is it's basically a swamp land which means it's the breeding ground for mosquitoes, which means malaria rates in this part of Serotti are really high. In other words, the one thing I possess is actually causing suffering in the community. It's quite literally killing people in the community, but that's the only thing I feel like I can bring to the mix. So the group started talking, what could we do with this land? Like blue sky thinking moment. Let's think differently. What could we do with the land? And someone in this group had a brainwave. What if we try and dig up the land? Like what if we keep digging, what if we could hit the water level and maybe establish a pond, right? No one had a better idea, so they're like, let's try it. So they found 20 guys that were willing to commit to 30 days of digging to see if they could hit the water level and establish a pond. So they start digging week one, zero breakthrough, week two no breakthrough, week three no breakthrough, knackered, discouraged but they keep on digging and by the end of the month they'd hit the water level and they'd established a pond. Now they start breeding fish in the pond and with the fish they start feeding the people of the community. But there's more than enough fish to feed the community so they start taking some of the fish to market to generate income. And they decide what they're going to do is they're going to use the income to send the kids of the community to school to get an education. Because we know that an education is a key pathway out of poverty. Now if the story ended there that would be amazing. The Swampland becomes a pond that's feeding the community and educating the children of the community but the story gets better. You can see in the picture, there's a second pond behind the first pond. They start breeding fish. They generate more income. They use the income to start employing someone to manage the ponds, right? There's more than enough income for that. So they start then using the income to build homes for people in the community. Now, if the story ended there, we'd be like, that is unbelievable, right? This swampland's become a pond. It's feeding the kids, It's um, the, the community. is educating the kids. It's providing employment. It's building homes for people in the community. But the story gets better. They start asking the question, like why are the conditions for the fish so good? Why are they multiplying at such a rate? And they do a little bit of research and they discover that the fish are feeding on the mosquito larvae. Right, so the malaria rates start to plummet in this part of Saroti, right? So this land that was quite literally killing people in the community, the cause of suffering for people in the community, became the pond that was feeding the the community, educating the children, providing employment, building homes, bringing malaria rates down. It was like a snapshot of Eden. The community was fully, fully alive, so proud of these ponds do you know how that story began one person waking up to the reality of Jesus like one person waking up to the reality of Jesus and a whole community experiences awakening like what happens when the church is revived We're moving beyond the one now, like what happens when hundreds and thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands wake up to the reality of Jesus as king and start serving him. That kind of revival in the church brings about awakening in the surrounding culture. I believe we're at the beginning of one of those moments. So what's the evidence I'm seeing as I look around the church? What's the evidence for this move of the Spirit? Isaiah 43, behold, I'm doing a new thing. It springs up, do you not perceive it? Like what am I perceiving right now? I want to name two things. Number one, the church is relearning how to worship wholeheartedly. Like just the sound of our singing is getting louder which communicates spiritual hunger it communicates confidence in the gospel we we believe what we're singing now just track the journey of the last five years pre-2019 in the context of london the context of my own church we were singing but there was quite a lot of apathy in the room a fairly standard posture in worship would have been this you know every so often a hand in the air You know, but it it was this kind of posture, and then COVID struck, and we couldn't even sing at all. And we gathered in environments like this, wearing our masks. People on the stage were allowed to sing, but we weren't allowed to, the congregation, right? Every so often someone, a rogue singer, would be singing behind the mask. You know who you are. Al is almost certainly that person knocking out a high harmony, like behind the mask. We all know, right? But we lost our voice stop singing what's happening in the church right now is we started singing again and we are singing loudly with spiritual hunger we're worshiping with heart soul mind strength we're worshiping in spirit and in truth something extraordinary is happening you need to realize this that every significant move of God every revival has a soundtrack And the soundtrack is the church learning how to sing again, right? If you track different stories, the evangelical awakening, what was the soundtrack to the evangelical awakening? It was the hymns of John Wesley, Charles Wesley, these two brothers. They wrote over six and a half thousand hymns, taking the pub songs of the day, putting good theology to them. And the church woke up and it led to an awakening in the surrounding culture. Think of the 1949 Hebridean revival. 2019, I spent a week in the Hebrides chatting to individuals that were now in their 80s and 90s. They were teenagers when the revival broke out in the Hebrides, and and I just took a kind of, a, well, I took my phone, pressed record, and just interviewed them. And do you know what they kept talking about? The singing. Like they were welling up. Oh, you should have heard the singing. Like we were singing the Psalms. It was so beautiful. And as the church found its voice in worship, the church woke up and it brought an awakening to the surrounding culture, to the islands, right? Think of the Azusa Street Revival, 1906. It has a soundtrack, right? 1906, it was the beginning of gospel music. Like a hundred years later, you can hear the effect of a move of the Spirit a century ago. You just turn on the radio. Who turns on the radio? But if you turn on the radio, right, you you can hear the influences of what was happening a hundred years ago as the church woke up and it brought an awakening to the surrounding culture. Think of the charismatic renewal movement of the 80s and 90s. In California, the vineyard movement, it had a huge effect on the church here in the UK. It had a soundtrack. John Wimble was a musician. He was a, a worship leader, a writer. He and his friends started writing love songs to Jesus and the church started to wake up. Do you know the last significant move of the Spirit here in the UK, here in London? Happened in 2008. Do you know what launched it? Here it is, you'll see it on the screen. <laughs> This is Al's latest album, Future Sound. And you know that I'm joking because there wasn't a significant move of the spirit in 2008. In fact, what happened in 2008 was a global financial crisis. Now, <laughs> I'm not making that link. It sounds like some of you are making that link. I'm not making that link. But there was a global financial crisis that happened at the same time Al released this worship album. Um, And I've been listening to this worship album and I'm surprised there wasn't a move of the Spirit. But anyway, anyway, the point is, if you read through the history books, if you read through the history books, every significant move of God, people start talking about The worship, the church finding its voice in singing, worshiping heart, soul, mind, strength, worshiping in spirit and in truth. And when I listen to the church singing, when I listen to this gathering singing, I'm like, it's happening right here and it's happening now. It's just the beginning, but something is stirring. What's that got to do with culture? Well, you need to know this, that culture is essentially the overflow of worship. Cultures formed through the overflow of worship. If you want to understand culture, ask certain questions. Who do they worship? Where do they worship? How do they worship? And you'll begin to make sense of culture, right? Which is why it's so important when we think about cultural relevance, we're very, very careful. One of my friends put it like this, cultural relevance at a time of cultural decay is a vote for death, right? If you seek to be relevant at a time of cultural decline, it's a vote for death, right? The the root word of culture, cultus, Latin word meaning to worship, right? Culture is the overflow of our worship. Um, If you look at Western culture, the foundations of of Western culture, it's essentially the Judeo-Christian story. Everything's built on the framework of the Judeo-Christian story. And the story looks like this. This would be a summary. Creation, this is Genesis 1 and 2. Like a vision for what it means to be human. A vision for human flourishing. Genesis 3, sin enters the story. Created order begins to unravel. Let's call that de-creation, right? And Genesis 12 onwards is the story of restoration, the story of redemption. It's the story of Israel that's fulfilled in the life, death, resurrection resurrection of Jesus, which pushes the story towards its completion, Revelation 21 and 22, right, where God completes what he began. He makes all things new and there's no death and no grief and no crying and no pain. Everything restored to how it was in the beginning in Eden, where there was no sin, no sickness, no suffering this story is the foundation for the culture that exists around us and we're at a moment in history where we're rejecting this story and the question is what are we replacing it with and Who's at the center of the new story that's emerging? I want to compare this story with the secular story that surrounds us. But before I do that, I want to give you my best attempt to uh, um, analyze the cultural moment that we find ourselves in. It comes in three parts. Are you ready? Number one, we've embraced secular narratives masquerading as kingdom stories. I'm talking about the church right now. In the church, we've been embracing secular stories that look like the kingdom sound like the kingdom but fundamentally aren't the kingdom right because they're dressed up in certain language in a certain style we're like oh that looks like the kingdom and we've embraced secular stories masquerading as kingdom stories number two smuggled into those stories are the idols of our age As we embrace the stories, we embrace the idols. And as we bow the knee to these idols, they've been emptying the church of power and emptying the church of creativity. And it's time to wake up. It's time to wake up. So let's compare the kingdom story with the secular story. I want you to notice that it feels like a really familiar shape. It's a variation of the Judeo-Christian worldview. Basically, what happened during the Enlightenment, a number of key thinkers said, look, we love the shape of this Judeo-Christian story, that it has a beginning. It accounts for the brokenness and the violence and the pain that surrounds us. We like that it has a linear view of time, a sort of like a movement, a progression towards this utopian vision. Like, we love all of that. What we hate about the story is that God's at the center of it. And we want to push God from being at the center of the story. We want to put the rational, autonomous self at the center of the story. And I want you to notice the language, like the dark ages moving towards the enlightenment. That's gospel language, right? People walking in darkness have seen a great, tough crowd. Um, Jesus said, I am the, I'm the light of the world, right? They basically took the language, like, but we want to be the ones that turn the lights on. Through scientific advance, human endeavor, we want to be the ones that say, let there be light. Think of the language of Renaissance, and we have been thinking about the language of Renaissance, um, and we will be over the next day or two. The word, French word meaning rebirth, right? That's just lifted out of the Gospels, John 3. Jesus in a conversation with Nicodemus, basically saying to Nicodemus, if you want in on this kingdom story, you need Renaissance. You need to be reborn, And you need to be reborn by the spirit of the living God. Like that's the kind of rebirth you need. And what happened in the Enlightenment, these Enlightenment thinkers started saying, oh, we love the language of Renaissance. That's great, rebirth. But we don't want a rebirth by the spirit. We've rejected God. We want a rebirth that comes about through our human endeavor, our brilliance. We want to be the architects of our future, masters of our destiny. Right, We want to be the centre of the story. And this new story begins to emerge. It's disorientating for all of us, particularly disorientating for a younger generation because they look at the story and they hear some of the secular remedies being offered to the ills and challenges of our day. And it looks like the kingdom and it sounds like the kingdom. Language, justice, freedom, love. it, It just sounds so familiar. But this is the litmus test. If Christ isn't the center of the story, it's not the kingdom story. And if the cross isn't the center of the remedy, it's not the kingdom remedy. So, Tom Holland, the historian, says this, not Spider Man. I haven't chatted to him, may well agree. But Tom Holland, the historian, he's written this book, Dominion The Making of the Western Mind. It's a book about the religion of secularism. And his central thesis, if you were to summarize it, is this. This is the summary of how he sees secularism. He describes it as godless Christianity, right? Christianity without Christ, the kingdom without the king. And what's happening right now is we want the fruit of the Judeo Christian worldview, but we're chopping down the tree right and this is a moment of cultural decline right and it's time for the church to wake up and this is what's beautiful the church is waking up this is what we've seen with some of the Asbury stories and stories that are happening across the world right now waves of repentance amongst a younger generation who are coming to church basically tearing up the secular script saying this isn't working anymore like I feel so anxious drowning in despair this secular story isn't working I heard that you're communicating a better story can you tell me about it like people are waking up to the person of Jesus we're starting to sing with a a greater sense of passion this is the summary if you want the kingdom it starts with undivided devotion to the king right this is the kind of worship where you're like God I want to give you everything you're the Lord of my finances Lord of my sexual desires you're Lord of everything you can have everything I want to be undivided in my devotion to you and it's stirring in the church right now and you can hear it when we worship so what am I perceiving this new thing that's stirring number one the church is relearning how to worship wholeheartedly number two the church is relearning how to host the presence of God's spirit I, I've got three kids, Benz, Josh, Olive. Um, rewind the clock, seven or eight years, something happened every single night. I'd take them to bed. Um, eventually, B and I, we'd go to bed. And then in the early hours, normally two, three in the morning, and this happened every single night. Two or three in the morning, I'd hear this voice, and the voice would go something like this. Daddy. Daddy. A little bit less creepy than that, but you, you get the idea. Sounds like a horror film. Daddy. Um, and I did what any loving parent would do. I ignored that voice. Um, but the voice was persistent. Daddy. So I tried something different. I rebuke that voice in the name of Jesus. And that didn't work either. And eventually B would kick me or elbow me and be like, one of the kids is calling for you. So I'd run upstairs, find which kid it was, and I'd go into the room, and they'd be fairly panicked, and they'd say something like, Dad, Dad, I, I, I think there's a monster under the bed. I'm pretty sure there's a monster under the bed. So I'd basically have a look under the bed, because you never know. I'd have a little look under the bed and say, look, there actually isn't a monster under the bed. They normally hide in the cupboards. So there's definitely not one... Definitely not one under the bed. And, and then they'd say, but there's a dark shadowy figure in the corner. And normally it was an item of clothing and the light was casting a shadow. So I'd go and deal with that. And then they'd sometimes say, dad, I think there might be a fox in the house. I, th- I think there might be a fox in the house. So we, where we live, there's a problem with urban foxes. I hate them. Um, and they jump over the wall into our garden and defecate. And that's the main reason I hate them. Um, but one of the kids would be like, I think maybe one of them's got into the house. And i would say, no. There is only one fox in this house, and that's your mum. And, and she's fast asleep right now. She's fast asleep right now. No other foxes in this house. Um, and eventually, I'd soothe them, and then I'd get into bed with them, right? And I'd hold them in my arms, and they would fall asleep, and I would fall asleep, and we'd both wake up at daylight, right? I tell you that story because I think that is a metaphor for the cultural moment we find ourselves in. Right. It feels really dark right now, culturally speaking, and when you talk to people, let alone young people, and listen to the stories, it feels pretty dark. Anxiety levels rising, right? Levels of despair rising, suicide rates in western cities rising. It's pretty terrifying. Like, you don't need to convince the younger generation that it feels pretty dark out there. And we in the church, we're contending for daylight. We're contending for a move of the Spirit, for the dawn from on high to break in upon us. We're contending for that, and I believe that it's coming. But what's the Spirit doing right now? And the answer is, he's leading us to the embrace of the Father. This is what the Asbury outpouring is essentially about. It's an outpouring of presence like there was some power but it wasn't primarily an outpouring of power signs and wonders right it was an outpouring of presence to to a generation that felt pretty scared drowning in despair aware of the darkness it was like the father coming saying it's all right no foxes in the house right no monsters under the bed let me just hold you i'm here it's all right like it's all right daylight's coming daylight's coming this is what the spirit is stirring in the church drawing us towards the presence of Jesus the presence of our Father. I believe we're experiencing a season shift in the church and the shift is from winter to spring. Listen to these words, Song of Songs. My beloved spoke and said to me, arise my darling, my beautiful one, come with me. See, winter is past, the rains are over and gone, flowers appear in the field. The season of singing has come, the cooing of doves is heard in our land, the fig tree forms its early fruit, the blossoming vines spread their fragrance. Arise, wake up. Come my darling, my beautiful one, come with me. It's time to wake up. Winter's passing, spring's coming, right? We've been through winter, COVID, COVID recovery, cost of living crisis. But long before COVID, the church was in winter, right? Experiencing the suffocating effect of secularism in a city like this. We've been in winter for a while. And what we've been doing in the church is we've been trying to learn how to be faithful in the midst of adversity, But let's just be really honest, what's that actually felt like? It's felt like surviving scarcity, right? You've been there, I've absolutely been there. Over the last few years where your posture becomes this, bracing for impact, this sucks. Get your head down, this nightmare has to come to an end. Brace for impact, head down, just get through it, just get through it. That's the posture that many of us have been operating with. That's the mindset, survive, head down, survive, scarcity. But what if we're experiencing a season shift, right? What if that was winter, but spring is breaking out upon us? And what if the challenge of this new season wasn't survive, right? Brace for impact. What, What if it was learning to steward abundance? What if God was saying, your posture needs to change. Don't be like this. Like, stand tall, open up your hands. I'm pouring out my spirit, right? Biblically speaking, when the prophets talk about this season shift from winter to spring, they mark the transition by spring rains. And the spring rains are the rains of God's presence that soften the ground and prepare the ground for abundance. This is what I believe the Lord is saying to the church right now in the Western context, is guys, get ready. That posture doesn't work anymore, right? I'm pouring out my spirit. Open up your hands. Abundance is breaking out upon you. Listen to the sound of the singing, right? And my presence is beginning to fall. Get ready for abundance. The spirit is hovering right now over the church. He's coming to rest and remain. Listen to these words. This is Luke 3. When all the people were being baptized, Jesus was baptized too. And as he was praying, heaven was opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you're my son, whom I love, with you I'm well pleased. Epic story, a passage many of us will know well. Here's a big question, why does the Spirit come in bodily form like a dove? Have you ever wondered that? Why a dove? I mean, they're nice birds, but why why a dove? Why not a robin? I love robins. And that would tie, I would tie in Christmas really nicely, you know, <laughs> Christmas cards and all that. Like, wh- why a dove? Because the dove is deeply significant, biblically speaking. Let me take you back to the beginning of the story, the creation story. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and empty, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the spirit of God was hovering over the waters. That's the English translation of the Hebrew text. Now, many of you will know this, but if you go through the the story of the nation of Israel, they reject God. And they end up in exile in Babylon for 70 years. Um, and during their time in Babylon, um, they experience a language change. So they go in speaking Hebrew. And 70 years later, when they return to their land, they're now speaking the language of the Babylonians, Aramaic. So the religious leaders get together and basically say, the younger generation, we need to tell them the story of God's faithfulness to his people. Um, that they, they don't understand like the language that we, we know. So we need a translation of this text into Aramaic so they can be inspired by the story of God's faithfulness. So they start working on a translation and it ended up being called the Targum. And the Targum is is like taking the Old Testament text and it sort of expands certain parts and it condenses certain parts. But it's basically an Aramaic translation of the story. Now in the Aramaic translation of the story of Genesis 1, it adds one more detail, right? The spirit of God was hovering over the waters Here it is, like a dove, right? Now, this is the translation that Jesus would have used. This is the translation most known to um, the Jewish community in the first century. So that when they read their creation story, there was a mental picture the Word of God and the waters and the Spirit hovering like a dove, right? That's the mental picture of creation. So, the baptism of Jesus, where you have the Word made flesh in the waters and the spirit comes to rest and remain like a dove those are the eyes to see like oh my goodness this is creation This is a repeat, this is a restoration of created order. Like sin led to decreation, created order unraveling, but the word, the water, like the spirit hovering like a dove, like this is recreation, this is recreation. And what follows that story, signs, wonders, the kingdom breaking in, in power, right? This is what happens when the spirit comes to rest and remain on the church. Like This is what we should be expecting as the spirit comes to rest and remain. Kingdom culture is established when the dove rests and remains. So these moments where we in the church are learning to host the presence of God again, I get really excited. If we learn how to host the presence, not just do cracking Sundays with amazing worship sets, but learn to host the presence, we should expect outbreaks of the kingdom. Now, let me just relate this to creativity as I come to land. We will be as creative as we are responsive to the movement of the spirit. We will be as creative as we are responsive to the movement of the spirit. Like I'm expecting ways of creativity to hit the church in this next season. I'm expecting stories of swamplands becoming ponds, not just every so often, but left, right and centre. I'm expecting as the church begins to wake up that there will be signs of awakening in the surrounding culture, but only if we're attentive to the spirit and learn to host the spirit. I wanna take you back in time to the Greco-Roman world. And in the Greco-Roman world, they had this understanding of creativity Um, when people did works of like art that were just beautiful, sublime, transcendent, right? They would basically say that that individual had a divine attending spirit inspiring them. They didn't believe that that creative, you know, work was summoned up from within. Something heavenly was resting upon them. In Greek mythology, they called that a daemon. In Roman culture, they called it a genius. An individual was never a genius. They had a genius. Some sort of heavenly spirit that was inspiring creativity, right? This idea of like, The spirit, some sort of heavenly being, is is resting and inspiring creativity. Fast forward to the Middle Ages. In the context of Spain, think of bullfighting, flamenco dancing. Um, When an artist, a dancer, a bullfighter did something sublime, like unbelievable, they would begin to chant, Olé, 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 right? We sometimes use it in our football stadiums, it doesn't sound quite as good as like Ole, 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 it sounds better in the Spanish, Ole, 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 right? Where does that come from? Ole, 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 where does that come from? Well, you have to go back to the plains of North Africa, where before that, where they would do these moonlit dances, right? And as they did these moonlit dances, if, if one of the dancers did something so sublime, Like, so beautiful, the people started saying Allah, 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 which is the name for God. Obviously, the name that the Muslim community used for God, but it's also the name the Arabic Christians use for God. It's the Arabic translation of the Hebrew word Elohim, God, right? So when someone did something extraordinary, they'd be like, that's God. That's not just human, that's divine. That's God. Olay, olay, olay. You know, Allah, Allah, Allah became ole, 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 became ole, ole. Right, not quite as good, but like it's like, that's God. That's God. Do you know what shifted during the Enlightenment movement? We stopped saying, that's God. And we put the rational, autonomous self at the center of the story. Instead of chanting the name of God, we started chanting the name of the artist. Right? And this is what's tragic. We've done this in the church. Right? We've built pedestals. We've built platforms. We've all been guilty of it. We've built our brands. Rather than having a genius, we've tried to be the genius. Right? Like, be the one that people like. That's extraordinary. He's extraordinary. She's extraordinary. Sublime. Not God. That's god that's a work of the spirit that glory to god god says i'm not going to share my glory with with another right i believe we've experienced a dearth of creativity in the church over the last few decades because we've been trying to be the genius trying to be the unbelievable preacher the unbelievable worship artist filling up stadiums all of that stuff We've tried to build the brands, be known as the genius church and what the Spirit's doing right now seemingly is tearing all of that down that wasn't me, that was never me I don't share my glory with another what I'm looking for, people that are hungry for my presence and when they sing, they're not this sort of can't be bothered mentality. They're lifting up their voices with confidence that the king is on the move and they're giving their lives in worship to him. And what I'm looking for are church leaders who aren't trying to be the star and build the brand and do the self-marketing, I'm looking for leaders that will go low and say, ole, ole, ole. That is God. That is God. And it's beginning to happen in the church. Leaders are beginning to go low. Like a new modus operandi, we're not building brands not trying to build platforms and and all of that stuff. We're trying to host the presence of Jesus, right? Here's the two signs I'm seeing. People are singing louder once more. Every revival has a soundtrack. I think we're beginning to hear it, right? And people are beginning to prioritize the presence of Jesus, hosting the presence of God's spirit. If we can continue to do that, I believe churches all over the Western world and far beyond will start waking up. If one person waking up can turn the swampland to a pond, lifting a community out of poverty, a whole church waking up, well, then we're talking about awakening. Lord, may it be so. Why don't we stand?
0: Hey, thanks for listening to this episode of the Renaissance Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe. Follow us on Instagram at renaissance.movement and online at renaissancemovement.org where you'll find out loads of ways to get involved, come to events around the world, and above all, make sure you connect in with your local church and encourage that every church community will become a cathedral of creativity. Know that we're praying for you. We're cheering you on. And don't forget to check back for more great content in the weeks ahead. God bless you.